in the New York Times bestseller, Outliers. Author Malcolm Gladwell devotes a chapter to the 10,000-hour rule. The idea behind the 10,000-hour rule being that if you want to be successful or to possess greatness in something, then on average you have to devote about 10,000 hours to it in order to be an expert. Gladwell writes, practice isn't the thing you do once you're good, it's the thing that you do that makes you good. Is the 10,000-hour rule a general rule for success? Microsoft's Bill Gates and the Beatles are among the case studies in this book. The author goes, out, goes on to tease out what distinguishes their success is not their extraordinary talent, but rather it is their extraordinary opportunities. Bill Gates, for example, he went to one of the few high schools in the country that had access to a time-sharing terminal in 1968. The Mother's Club at his high school had enough money from a rummage sale to pay for computing time. When the money ran out, one of the parents of a kid at that high school happened to work at a business that needed help on the weekends in order to test the company's software, and in return, they gave free computing time to the students who did that. Gates lived within walking distance to the University of Washington, a university that happened to have free computing time between 3 to 6 in the morning which Bill Gates availed himself to quite a bit. In fact, that's a funny part in the book because his parents realized after learning that years later that that is why Bill was always so hard to wake up in the morning for school. The biggest misconception about success, Gladwell says, is that what we do, that it is solely on our smarts, our ambition, our hustle, and our hard work. Gladwell notes that this simply is not true, and he says that our success, it is exceptional and it is mysterious. It is grounded in a web of advantages and inheritances, some deserved, some not, some earned, and some just plain lucky. Your success or failure, it is dependent upon forces beyond your control. Ultimately, what the author of the book Outlier wants us to move away from is the notion that everything that happens to a person depends upon a person. Hold that as we now read together James 4, verses 13 through 17. Come now, you who say... Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a town and spend a year there doing business and making money. Yet you do not even know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wishes, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the right thing to do and fails to do it commits sin. The word of the Lord for us. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together, you all. 
Oh God, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts and our minds, may it all be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. The English poet William Ernest Henley, he is probably best known for one particular poem titled Invictus. Henley wrote this poem while healing from having one of his legs amputated at the age of 17, the result of tuberculosis to the bone. Winston Churchill quoted this poem to stir listeners in the dark days of World War II. Nelson Mandela, who spent 27 years in prison, he recited this poem to fellow prisoners inspired by its message. Listen to its words. Invictus. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. It's an expression of self-confidence in the face of oppression. It pronounces the will to survive in the face of a severe test. Yet, the affirmation, I am the master of my faith and the captain of my soul, suggests something else that begs serious reflection. How frequently are you tempted to believe that you are in control of your destiny. Our passage begins with words spoken to traveling merchants who assuredly declare their plans to make money by traveling abroad for a year. Now, are these merchants Christians? That's actually an important question for us to, to pose to one another here right out of the gate. James does not use the word brothers as he does several times during this letter, but the, the content, content of the paragraph that we read together, verses 13 and 17, the content seems to support the idea that these merchants have some sort of close ties to the church. He implores them to look at life from a Christian perspective. He urges them to acknowledge God's sovereignty, and he suggests that they know what to do in this matter. James hardly would speak to non-Christians in that way. So these traveling businessmen, they are confident planners. They seem to have some sort of connection to Christ and to Christ's church. They know where they are going. They know when they are going, and they know how long they are going to stay there. Plus, at the end of their journey, they are pretty confident of the end result, which is that they are going to make a lot of money. Friends, it's important to note what James is not saying. James is not saying that it is wrong to plan for the future, and he is also not saying that it is wrong to desire to make a profit. 
The problem seems to lie in the way that these traveling businessmen, that they, the way that they are making their plans with a smug certainty that leaves no room for God. They are so caught up in their pursuits that they are forgetting that they are, just like us, radically dependent upon the Lord of the universe, which, according to James, is an attitude unworthy of who they are. Life is short. James goes on to describe life using the metaphor of a mist. Now, those of us who have lost someone precious to us in death, we understand this metaphor. For the person we love and miss, their life was all too fast and fleeting. Their coming and their going, it all went by way too quickly. James then reminds them of their ignorance of either, even tomorrow, which brings to mind Proverbs 27.1, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. Having life insurance and money in savings accounts and retirement savings, all of those plans that we make, those contingency plans, these are, this is not what James is going after. This is not what he is rebuking. That can be a form of wise stewardship. What James rebukes is any kind of planning for the future that largely leaves God out, marked by our self-reliance. The merchants are encouraged to add a key qualifier to their plans, that qualifier being if God wills or if the Lord wills or Lord willing. That is a, a widespread sentiment of the New Testament, most famously found in the Lord's Prayer. Thy will be done, thy kingdom come, on earth as it is in heaven. And we find it also in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus in deep anguish, facing a horrific death. He pours out his heart to the Father and he says, if there is any way for this suffering to be avoided, would that be possible? But then the final petition of his prayer is a certainty of what he ultimately wants is not what I want, Father, but what you want. The will of the Father is his ultimate concern, even in the face of Jesus' greatest crises. Simply sprinkling sentences with the phrase, God willing, or the Lord willing, or if the Lord wills, this does not fulfill this. Not that there is anything wrong with that if you are a person who tends to say, if God wills, if the Lord wills. But as Presbyterian founder John Calvin says, Jesus, Paul, and the other apostles do not always state this conviction when they plan for the future. What was important is not the verbalization, but that they had it as a principle fixed in their mind. That they had, if God wills, as a principle fixed in their minds. I'd like to invite us to, to sit and to think about sin for a moment since this passage 
talks about sin. When we think about our sin, we often place our focus on the sins we commit. Sins of commission are those things that we do that we know we shouldn't do. It's the many times when we miss the mark of loving God and loving our neighbor. Sins of omission, on the other hand, these are acts that are left undone. It's the things that God expects us to do, but we don't do them. I'd like to pose before us some questions to help us to identify possible sins of omission in our lives. What am I not paying attention to that I know is important to God's heart? What am I not, when am I not standing up for something that I know is not right? Who am I refusing to forgive? Who am I refusing to stop judging? And how am I withholding love from my neighbor? The sin of omission. This is the downright refusing to do something that God has shown us that we should do. Brothers and sisters, sins of omission are just as serious and real as sins of commission. In this passage, the merchants' failure to speak about their lives with any reference to God's will, which they know that they should be doing, James says that they know better and, in effect, what they are doing is a sin. It is a sin of omission. Not having that principle fixed in their minds that God is in control of their lives and their future, not them. The sin of self-sufficiency, it is a very serious matter. How can we take pride in our ability to chart the future when we do not even know what tomorrow will bring? It is God who governs and sustains our lives in ways that are so completely mysterious and sometimes hard to understand. Nearly 14 years ago on Tuesday, September 11th, 2001, I woke up early that morning. I was running around trying to pull things together because I was scheduled for a flight later that afternoon from Huntsville, Alabama to Los Angeles. I was planning to join my parents as my dad was being inducted into an international association that's dedicated to combating insurance fraud. And I also later that week had an appointment with Fuller Seminary as I was planning the next year to begin full-time studies. A phone call from a friend alerted me to the horrific events that were happening that morning in New York. And I, like the rest of America, I turned on the TV and began to absorb events that forever changed our country. I checked the status of flights throughout that day, both in Huntsville, Alabama, and within multiple hour drives, as I so desperately hoped to be in attendance for my dad's award. But as we all now know, that it would be days before commercial flights resumed. So I missed my dad's ceremony, and I also missed that appointment at Fuller Seminary for a campus visit. 
While as a country we ached and reeled, that missed flight also set in motion for me a cascade of changes in my plans. I wasn't able to figure out a time to easily get back to Fuller during that fall. So long story short, what I did instead of starting Fuller full-time that next year, I did a three-month study sabbatical the following fall, returning to Fuller the following year for full-time study, delaying my seminary studies one full year. If I had started in 2002 instead of 2003, as was my plan. I would not have crossed path, paths with the Norris family, the amazing family that I lived for four years while I, was with, uh, while I was studying in Pasadena, a family that is now like my family because I would have been looking for long-term instead of short-term housing initially, and the addition to their house had not yet been finished. If I had started in... 2002 instead of 2003, I would not have entered into the internship that I did when I was out there as that particular church would not have had an internship posted when I was looking for an internship. And if I had started in 2002 instead of 2003, who in the world knows where I would be living now, but it would not be here. Because the timing of me looking for a call and you looking for a pastor would not have aligned. What a difference a day makes. There is a hidden and a continuous work of God occurring within our families and within our congregations and within God's larger world, all for God's glory and for God's purposes. Sometimes God's work can be so clearly seen, but ultimately we live by faith, trusting in the everyday care and work and promises of a loving God. As we learn from question 28 from the Heidelberg Catechism written over 400 years ago to Christ followers in every time and place, we are to be patient in adversity, grateful in the midst of blessing and to trust our faithful God and Father for the future, assured that nothing can separate us from God's love. Brothers and sisters, the plot of our lives, it can feel vague. But a larger story is being told of which our lives are a part as God works through the circumstances of our lives to weave together a story of redemption of which our lives are a part. So we humbly commit any plans to the Lord with a trust beyond all measure. And we boast not in ourselves or take pride in our ability to chart the future, but rather we boast in the Lord who sovereignly directs the course of our lives. We are not in control of nearly as much as we think we are. We really have so very little power real power in our lives. All we are and all we have, it is a gift from God. We are finite, dependent creatures. Every day is a gift. 
But yet, as Tim Keller writes and reminds us, we are prone to put ourselves in the place of God and to tell God in no uncertain terms how we should run the universe. My will be done is our heart's desire most of the time. Friends, we ask God not to be a part of our plans, but we surrender again our plans and we pray and we seek to try to discern and figure out what God is already doing and to join God's God there again and again to submit ourselves and to submit our plans and to have, if the Lord's will, that principle fixed in our minds. This is what we live into. This is the perspective from which we view all of life. As a way to help us to grow in grace and to reorient and to bend our wills to his. You are invited this week in a congregation-wide assignment. You're going to find a prayer when you exit today, either in the back of this particular room or it's going to be out in the hallway. You are invited to pray this prayer of relinquishment. It is a prayer written by Richard Foster, author and theologian. The invitation is to pray this daily as a way to help us to remember that God is in charge and not us, and that we are to depend upon God for everything. It's the invitation to pray as Jesus teaches, to pray thy will be done, and to listen and to ask what God wants and to invite God's will into our lives. I'd actually like to close our time now with this prayer. And as you pray this throughout the week, I would encourage you not only to pray this for yourself, but in your mind's eye to think about others within the covenant family. Think about this entire church and think about God's larger church as we pray to relinquish our plans and our will to the Lord. If you are willing to do so, I invite you now as you bow your heads to open your palms as a gesture both of receiving and release. Would you pray with me? Today, O oh Lord, I yield myself to you. May your will be my delight today. May your way have perfect sway in me. May your love be the pattern of my living. I surrender to you my hopes, my dreams, my ambitions. Do with them what you will, when you will, as you will. I place into your loving care my family, my friends, my future. Care for them with a care that I can never give. I release into your hands my need to control, my craving for status, my fear of obscurity. Eradicate the evil, purify the good, and establish your kingdom on earth. For Jesus' sake, amen. Actually, let's continue to pray, you all. God, as we now prepare to come to your table, as a people so uncompletely worthy of 
the extravagant love that you bestow upon every one of us. Holy God, we bow before you and we say thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for your pursuit of us. Thank you for not giving up on us when we are so prone to be self-sufficient and self-reliant and to put ourselves on the throne instead of you. God, we confess our sin. We confess those sins that we have done. And we confess the sin, those good things that we have failed to do, that we know we should be doing. God, we thank you that your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Lord, we are in awe of who you are. We are in wonder that you desire relationship with us. So, Spirit of the living God, would you fall afresh on us as we now come to this table as beggars in need of your mercy. With gratitude for Jesus and for life itself, we now make this prayer humbly together, yielding our lives and all that we are and all that we have to you. We make this prayer in your name. Amen.